Good morning, church. Question to get us started this morning. What will heaven be like? Is that a great question? It's one of those questions that whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, it's something that we wrestle with a great deal. It engages so much inside of us. It engages our knowledge of Scripture. It engages our imagination. What will heaven be like even engages the caricatures of heaven that we gain from books and from movies and from culture, however misguided those may be at times. But the reality of heaven is something that I don't believe we have the vocabulary for fully, but I want us to give it a shot today. Just to go quickly into places like the book of Revelation, it gives us some insights into what heaven will be like. The, the Apostle John was taken up into heaven in a vision and given a revelation, if you will, in that last book of the Bible. Not just about the end times, but about the culmination of all things and about the recreation of all things and eternity beginning and heaven becoming a reality. So what do we learn in the book of Revelation about heaven? Uh, there's so much to unpack there, but just a few quick highlights in the book of Revelation, it's apocalyptic in its literature style, but we learn some of the physical dimensions of heaven as the new Jerusalem comes down into our existence on this earth and heaven and earth meet and eternity begins. We gain perspective on the physical dimensions of heaven. In the book of Revelation, we read about this throne room of God and the majesty of God himself and thunder and lightning and jewels and carnelian and jasper and colors that we cannot fully describe. We read about these elders, these 24 elders and who they are and what they represent. And they lay their crowns down before the throne of God. Beautiful pictures and imagery of what heaven will be like. We read about these four living creatures and they're both awesome and terrifying at the same moment. We even learn about some of the hymns that we'll be singing together in heaven as all the saints throughout all time gather together in his name with him right there with us. In heaven, it says that every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. Sorrow will be gone. Death and sin itself have no place in heaven. We get to live in eternity forever. And the best part about heaven, aside from all the physical descriptions of it, is this. We will all experience the fullness of the presence of God. That God will make his dwelling among his people, among all of us. We don't have the vocabulary for that yet. You see, we gain these glimpses of the fullness of heaven and the fullness of God. We gain glimpses of that here in this life. But it's an earthly reflection of the full glory that waits us. We gain pictures of this throughout time and history. 2,000 years ago, the fullness of God, the deity, came to this earth in the person of Jesus Christ. We read about him in the Gospels. We weren't there for that. We only had him for a few decades. But in Jesus, we see the fullness of God. His life, what he did, what he taught, how he lived, how he died, and his resurrection. This is the basis of our faith, and the picture that we gain from, through Jesus is that 
of God himself in his fullness. Even as Jesus ascended into heaven, as we read about, he gave us the gift of his Holy Spirit. The promised comforter that would come to guide each of us, to guide his church. And through the power of the Holy Spirit at work, we see the fullness of God on display in this world, in this earth. The Holy Spirit has given us certain gifts of the Spirit as markers of God's presence among us. These gifts include, well, the church itself. Now, the church itself is full of, well, fallen humans. And we've done a great job in messing things up over the centuries. But despite us, the movement of the Holy Spirit and the fullness of God and the revelation of God continues to unfold. And the mission of God over 2,000 years continues to unfold among us. We are honored and privileged to be a part of God's church. The Holy Spirit has given us the fruit of the Spirit. And the first fruit of the Spirit is, of course, love, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. The Holy Spirit's also given us the gifts of the Spirit. We read about those in many places in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit unleashes the power of God in his church and through the church into the world. And all of this is important, but all of this is an earthly reflection of the fullness of God. And church, when that day comes, when we enter glory and the culmination of all things and eternity begins and we are face to face with God in heaven someday, I just want to enable us, empower us to dream a little bit today of what that experience will be like. And yes, that actually does lead us into our passage today. See, we've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 all summer long, as Pastor Carl mentioned, I think for 11 weeks now. We've been walking through this chapter almost word by word, going through different aspects of this one word, love. And a very specific type of love, agape love. Agape love is that sacrificial, others-focused, selfless, God-inspired love, Holy Spirit-driven love that defines us as Christians. We are both recipients of that love and the dispensers of that love. That love is shown through the church and not just in general sense through the church, specifically through each and every one of us. That agape love is referenced in John 3.16, as we've said multiple times. We're the recipients of it. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That's agape love. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So as we come to 1 Corinthians 13, today we're going to look at verses 8 through 12. We're rounding third, heading for home with this chapter. Next week, Pastor Carl's going to preach on verse 13 to close out this series. And this series is called Love the Other, very appropriately so. That's agape love in action, loving the other. So I want to read together 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 8. Let me read this for us. 
we can get back to that. There we are. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So the Apostle Paul is writing this passage. He's continuing his thought through 1 Corinthians 13, and he's describing the deeper ways of love, but he does so in a way that's a little bit unique to the chapter in these verses. See, we've been studying different qualities of what love is, and maybe more to the point, what love isn't, as we've studied this. Paul opens up this paragraph, these verses, by saying, love never ends. I want to just isolate verse 8 for a second. When he says, love never ends, the other translations go to the places saying, love never fails, love never falls, love never ends. Just hang on to that truth. That, it sounds so simple, but it is immensely profound that what the Apostle Paul is communicating to us here is that love is eternal. This agape love will last. It'll be a bridge of sorts from the way we function as Christians, the what we are about, what's in our DNA as Christians in this life to transition into the life to come, eternity, heaven. This agape love is eternal and will remain. What he does is he contrasts this with different gifts of the Spirit, as you see here in verse 8. He talks about prophecies, and he talks about tongues, and he talks about knowledge. I'm going to get into those in a moment. Another thing that we've learned throughout this study is 1 Corinthians 13 has a very unique context. Yes, it's all about love. Yes, it's universal. It's a teaching that applies to the church throughout the centuries. That's why we're talking about it 2,000 years after it was written. But in its original writing, the book of 1 Corinthians was designed to be a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. And to understand a little bit about the church in Corinth, they had, the, they had an issue. That's why Paul's writing to them. Part of their issue is that they overemphasize certain spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 13, in its proper context, is understanding that in 1 Corinthians 12, just to isolate chapters 12, 13, and 14 for a second, 1 Corinthians 12, in part, the Apostle Paul outlines various spiritual gifts. He's describing to the Corinthian church what the gifts are and what the Holy Spirit does. Then he goes into this love chapter. And then in chapter 14, he isolates a few of the spiritual gifts. He talks specifically about the spiritual gift of prophecy, about the spiritual gift of tongues, and the spiritual gift of interpreting tongues. And he gives that church specific guidelines as far as how those gifts are, be, are to be lived out in community together in the church for the glory of God. As we mentioned, 
The Holy Spirit is the one who gives these gifts. It is an earthly reflection of the fullness of the glory of God. So let's just quickly go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to go backwards a little bit here. I want to read to you starting in verse 4 so you understand a little bit more about these gifts and why they are important. In writing this letter, Paul describes it this way. He says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to that same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, the gift of discernment, and to another various kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. Now pay attention to verse 11 here. It's important. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. What is going on here? What is being spoken about here, this is not an exhaustive list of the gifts of the Spirit. It's a partial list. Paul is highlighting various spiritual gifts and the Corinthian church the part of their issue is that they're emphasizing some gifts more than others. And they're seeking after this, the, the spiritual gifts, some of the more powerful and dramatic ones. But Paul's reminding them, the Holy Spirit is the one who gives these gifts in the manner in which he pleases. The gifts are given to the church. They're given to every Christian as a way to reflect an earthly reflection of the power of God at work. Now, in chapter 14, we're not going to go there, but in chapter 14, as I mentioned, he walks the church through certain gifts and their usefulness to edify the body of Christ and to glorify God. So you see some things are at work within the Corinthian church. Now we're going to hop back to verse 8 here from 1 Corinthians 13. He says that love never ends. Love is eternal. It is that agape love that defines us here in this life, that translates into eternity that we get to celebrate when we are face-to-face -face with God, that agape love is not going anywhere. But as for prophecies, they will pass away. Let's talk about some of these gifts that Paul describes here. The gift of prophecy. What is the gift of prophecy? It's a one gift that has a couple of different applications that the Holy Spirit empowers. One of those applications is what we commonly think of when we think of prophecy. We're going to prophesy and we're going to speak about future events that will happen. A lot of the prophecies that are contained in the Old Testament foreshadow Jesus Christ and his coming. A lot of the prophecies in the book of Revelation, as difficult as apocalyptic literature is to interpret, have not happened yet. Prophecy speaks of future events, and the Holy Spirit gives certain individuals the ability to prophesy that way. But also, prophecy, the spiritual gift of prophecy is proclamation of God's word. 
Think about the prophets in the Old Testament and the New Testament. They were deliverers of messages from God to his people. They spoke proudly and prophetically with the voice of God at their side. It is a spiritual gift that certain people have to speak and proclaim the word of God and the message of God to the people that need to hear it. This is a spiritual gift. What will heaven be like? Think about this. Allow yourself to dream a little bit again. In heaven, we will be in the very presence of God. We get an earthly reflection of him now. But when we're there, what need is there for prophecy? What am I going to prophesy about future events for in heaven? We're already there. We've already arrived. We're in glory in heaven. Yes. And an even louder amen, who in the world, or maybe more to the point, who in heaven, is going to want to hear Pastor Mike preach about 1 Corinthians 13 or anything? Can I have an amen? Oh, no one's going to, you have, we will all have the ability to be in the presence of God. There's no mediator that's needed to deliver messages anymore. We get to see him and be with him and reside with him. Imperfection. The gift, spiritual gift of prophecy is useful now in this world, in this earth, so that we have a reflection of the glory of the fullness of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. But there's coming a day where we won't need that anymore. The same is true for tongues. Now, what is the spiritual gift of tongues? One gift with a couple of practical applications that we read about in the Bible, many of which are contained in the book of Acts. Not exclusively, but primarily. One manifestation of the gift of tongues is what we find on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit literally descended as tongues of fire and descended on those first disciples, and those people were empowered by the Spirit to speak in other known languages that they could not speak otherwise. That would be for me, let's go with Mandarin Chinese. I have no idea how to speak that. If I were given the gift of tongues in this regard, I would be able to speak in Mandarin Chinese and in a way that the Holy Spirit empowers me to do so. It's a spiritual gift that's unleashed on the church. The other, the other practical application of the gift of tongues is to, is to speak in a prayer language. Some people call it the language of the angels. It's to, to speak in a way that is almost unintelligible in normal human language, which needs an interpretation of those tongues. We read about that in the next chapter. Now this is a spiritual gift that the Holy Spirit gives us supernaturally to speak in these languages that God empowers us to speak in for his edification and glory. But we're in heaven, and we're there in the presence of God himself. We won't need a special spiritual gift to know how to speak in these languages. All the saints all the time will be together. I don't know what language we're going to speak there. I doubt it's going to be English. In fact, I, I, my theory is it's going to be that special language of angels. But we, we will be in his presence and we will be united as one. The spiritual gift of tongues will cease when that perfection comes and we're in heaven together. And, of course, the same is true for knowledge. 
What's the spiritual gift of knowledge? That if the spiritual gift of prophecy in one regard is looking forward and speaking to future events that we couldn't possibly know, the spiritual gift of knowledge is to have knowledge about present day things that we couldn't otherwise possibly know or even past events. Again, it's a gift that the Holy Spirit gives to the church that when we're in heaven, we're not going to need that knowledge anymore. There's no need for us to know anything else because we've already arrived in glory. I think you're understanding my point. Love, this agape love that we've been studying all summer, is eternal. Even something as powerful as the gifts of the Holy Spirit, when we arrive there, won't be relevant anymore. But love will be. Let's keep reading. Verses 9 through 12 amplifies the same point over and over again. I want, I want to spend a little bit of time going through this. Verses 9. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, that's, that's heaven, that's eternity. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. We have such a limited understanding of the fullness of God, even with the revelation of Scripture, with all of the knowledge that we can gain about who God is, it will be different. And that's a beautiful thing in heaven. The Apostle Paul amplifies this point in verse 11. He says, when I was a child, this is him going to his own testimony, his metaphor here. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. This, Paul is not trying to make light of the Corinthian church. He's not trying to make light of us as the church. He's pointing out a truth. He's calling us out saying we have a limited understanding of who God is. And the fullness of his presence now. But there's coming a day when we will. When we grow up, when we mature. Now, it's ironic because Danielle was just talking about becoming like a child in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. That is absolutely true. That our hearts would be geared that way. Paul is not talking about that here. He's talking about our mindset. He's talking about our understanding. He's talking about our connection, our relationship with God. It will mature. Love will mature our understanding of God will mature when we enter glory. This is amplified again in verse 12. For now, there's a few now-then statements. Now we see in a mirror dimly. It's that earthly reflection of the fullness of God that we talk about. Now we see in a mirror dimly. Then we shall see face to face. can only imagine what that will be like. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. I can only imagine that. Now, I know in part. Then, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. There's coming a day when we will know fully the glory of God. 
And that is something to truly look forward to. Here's where Paul's going with this, and here's where I want to take us. What we as Christians need to be about, absolutely, is the ways that the Holy Spirit empowers us as his disciples to be the church, to live the fruit of the Spirit, to live the gifts of the Spirit, to use the momentum that the Holy Spirit empowers us in with evangelism, discipleship, and living out the Great Commission. All of these things are immensely true. But our DNA is Christians. What flows through our veins as Christians is this agape love. Love eternal. That's what's going to last from this life into the next. Not even the spiritual gifts will. There's a theologian named N.T. Wright. Many of you are familiar with him. He sums it up this way in one of his commentaries. I love the way that he describes this. He says, the point of 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 12, is that the church must be working in the present on the things that will last into God's future. Love will do this. Prophecies, tongues, and knowledge, so highly prized in Corinth, will not. They are merely signposts to the future. When you arrive, you no longer need signposts. Love, however, is not just a signpost. It is a foretaste of of the ultimate reality. Love is not merely the Christian duty. It is the Christian destiny. So church, if you hear me today, understand this. We are to be about this love that we've been studying all summer. It's not just a word study through 1 Corinthians 13. It is a reality that we are to embrace as Christians. We are to be both the recipients of this agape love and the dispensers of this agape love to others. What's our sermon series titled? Love the Other. This is what we are to be about. How about this? It's kind of like this. You okay if I go with a, a story here to kind of close us out? Tell me if you've heard this one. All right? Story of a family. This is a pretty tight-knit family, and you've got a dad who instills in this family all the values and all the morals and all the teachings and the ways of God. Leads his family wisely and well. Builds up a family estate and a business. Builds up an inheritance to give to his kids. And he's got one son who, you know, the old, I'm the oldest son of my family. Just give me a second here. My sisters, Elizabeth and Melissa. Elizabeth, if you're watching. Melissa, if you're watching. They, they joke with me. They call me the blessed Michael when, when I go home. They, and they don't say that genuinely. They say that sarcastically. They call me the blessed Michael. So I'm the oldest son, and I sort of, you know, I can do no wrong in my parents' eyes. Although if mom and dad, you're watching, you know that's not true either. <laughs> this is a tight-knit family, and the oldest Son has got it all together. He's got his life figured out. He is going on that straight and narrow. And yes, Dad, I'm going to be right there with you in this family business, and we're going to do this right. And the oldest son is going to gain the inheritance. Goodness, I wish that were true. The bigger inheritance. And the siblings fight for whatever is left over. But in this family, you've got another, there's another son, a younger son, and this is the son who says, I can't just do this at the family estate. I've got to go. I've got to figure my life out. So he talks to his dad. 
And he says, Dad, I know that when you pass away, there's an inheritance that I'm supposed to get someday. I got to get out of here. I got to go. I need that inheritance now, Dad. Now, I'm sure there was some father-son conversations going on there, but the father begrudgingly says, well, okay, you got to do what you got to do. I give you your inheritance. Be careful with it. So predictably, what does this son do? He goes into the city and he lives wildlife and he squanders this inheritance. He just blows it and destroys it. I mean, we're talking epic collapse. Hit the panic button on his life. Train wreck. Squanders the inheritance, has wild living, goes into, uh, you know, engages with prostitution and just destroys himself. And then... He's destitute and he's poor, and then a famine hits. So this, this son is left with nothing, and he eventually gets a job feeding pigs. And he doesn't realize how badly he's messed up his life. He's so hungry and destitute and poor that he's giving pigs this food, and he's longing for even the food that he's giving to the pigs until he finally has that moment of clarity where he wakes up and realizes, what have I done? He comes to his senses and he says, wait a second, I'm my father's son. And yet the guys that work for my dad, the hired help, they're living better than I am. They're eating better than I am right now. What have I done with my life? So he realizes there's only one thing left to do and that is to crawl back home. He says to himself, I'm not even worthy to be called his son anymore. I've messed this up so badly, but I got to try. So he goes back home, and now dad is sitting on the, on the porch in his chair, watching out in the fields, and in the distance he can see his son coming towards him. And in that quick moment, dad has a big decision to make. How am I going to receive my son? What am I going to do here? This is the ultimate I told you so moment, if dad so chose to do that. This is the ultimate, oh, so you're going to come crawling back to me now after you've destroyed your life moment. You want a dad lecture? This is like the dad lecture that he could give his son. This is the, the moment where he says, you have dishonored your family's name. You've destroyed your own inheritance. You've put our family at great risk. You have abandoned the way that I've brought you up and raised you. You've dishonored your God in the way that you've lived your life. And now you're coming back home. But then dad remembers. Or he just says this to himself. He gets real quiet as he sees his son out there and he says, breathe deep, you got this. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant and it is not rude. Love doesn't insist on its own way. Breathe deep. Love is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. doesn't keep a record of wrongs, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, and hopes all things, 
and endures all things, love never ends. So the father's sitting in his chair, the son's coming toward him, and he knows this. So he goes and he runs to his son, and what does he do? He throws his arms around his son, he hugs him, and he loves him, and he kisses him, and he welcomes him back. He loves his son. That's that agape love that we keep talking about on full display. And his son says, Dad, I'm not even worthy to be your son anymore with what I've done. But Dad says, I don't care. You were dead and now you're alive. And he puts a ring in his finger and a robe around him. And he has a feast in his honor. Now the older son, he's got his own issues to work through. We're not going to focus on him that much. But this younger son, we'll call him the prodigal son. He's the one that needs this undeserved grace. And the father gives that to him. We all know this story. You can reference it in Luke chapter 15 if you'd like. There's a reason why this is one of the most well-known parables that Jesus ever told. Because we understand that each and every one of us is that prodigal son or that prodigal daughter. And that God is our father. And he's given us this inheritance, this life, this beautiful life. He's given us breath in our lungs. He's given us this imago Dei, his own image imprinted upon us. And we go and we mess it up royally. And we talk about epic train wreck of our lives. Every one of us is guilty of that. We've destroyed the inheritance that God gave us. And when we come to that moment of clarity... And we come to our senses. We go back to our father. He wraps his arms around us. He doesn't necessarily give us a ring or a robe or a banquet. At least not this side of heaven yet. But what he does is he's wrapping his arms around us. He says, I've given you forgiveness. Salvation. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ. You are set free. You are my son. You are my daughter. And that is this perfect display of agape love. God so loved the world, me. We're each recipients of that. But here's the thing. Church. It's one thing for us to be the recipients of this, but what happens when you take Luke chapter 15 and you blend that together with 1 Corinthians 13, something really powerful happens and we are challenged by it or we need to be challenged by this. Here's what I mean. What if? It's a story that Jesus told, so work with me here. We're just going to adapt the story ever so slightly. What if you are the father the actual father or the, the mother needing to display, show that agape love to your actual prodigal son, your actual prodigal daughter. How will you love those who've hurt you? Will you show them that agape love and demonstrate that for them, knowing what love is and what love isn't? What if it's a friend that has betrayed you that you see coming out from the distance? How will you show them that agape love?
What if it's a wife that has hurt you and wounded you? What if it's a husband that has done the same thing? What if it's your enemy? What if it's an old friend? What if it's, what if you're role reversal? You're an adult child and you see your parent that has wounded you and hurt you coming in from the distance. How will you display that agape love? What is our sermon series titled? Love the other. Love the other. As we are recipients of that agape love, we are also called to be the dispensers of the same agape love. Do not hear what I am not saying. I'm not saying you need to open yourself up to more abuse. Remember the character in the story coming to you from a distance has had that moment of repentance and clarity and I'm not even worthy to be your son. Displaying agape love does not mean opening yourself up to more abuse. It means living out what love is and what love is not. Rejoices in the truth being one of those things. The question remains, how will you live out agape love? It's been given to us. Love is eternal. Love will never end. And church, I want to challenge us today to be about this agape love because it's going to prepare us for something great. It's going to prepare us for the reality of when we see God face to face. If we learn to live this out now, it's even greater than that of the spiritual gifts that God has unleashed on humanity. Greater than that is this gift of love. So let us love together. Let us be the church it starts with an individual. It moves into your family. It flows into the church, and it exudes from the church into the world that needs a Savior. Be that agape love to a world that desperately needs to be the recipients of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you glory for this agape love given to us undeservingly. Lord, we are humbled by you. Father, as you have wrapped your arms around us and shown us this grace that we don't deserve, Father, we are challenged to love the other. Teach us this, Lord. God, we give you praise beyond words for the reality of this agape love that we get as a glimpse of what heaven will be like the fullness of you and father we look forward to that day where we worship together with all the saints where the temporary things the partial things that we know of now are replaced by what is perfect lord as we long for that day we pray that you would teach us the deeper truths about love and how to live that out to those that need it we give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's stand.